So Judges 2, starting verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After the whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baal. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and to see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given their forefathers through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Just deserves a clap for being able to pronounce all those names. Uh, let's pray together, shall we? Our Holy Father, we thank you so much that you're a God who continues to speak to us. Thank you so much that you're a God uh, who's not silent. Father, we pray today that as we look at your book, uh, the book of Judges, that we get to meet you face to face, that we get to know you, and Father, as a result of knowing you, that our lives would change as well. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. I wonder whether you've ever gotten to those wonderful, deep philosophical questions about what God is like. Uh, on those rainy afternoons, not that we've had many of them, in Manning or at the Terrace Cafe, as you sat around the table, and just pondered, what is God like? Uh, I wonder if in your discussion with your friends, Christian and non-Christian, that you got to the stage of actually working out whether he's alive or whether he's dead, whether he's actually there, whether he actually exists. Because I guess as you think about the natures and attributes, 
the character of God, one of the problems is, what if he, it doesn't exist? Especially if, if in all our society here, especially on campus, most of our uh, university publications keep on saying that he doesn't exist. And in fact, you're out of your mind. You're deluded if you actually think that God does exist. Or in the midst of the conversation, you, you're actually one of these people that actually stay quite quiet. That you're a person there who, you know, when other people talk to you privately, you sort of go, well, I know he exists. I know that. You know, as we do the surveys around the traps, about 80% of the population actually believe that God exists. But frankly, yes, he exists, but he has nothing to do with what we say, nothing to do with our lives whatsoever. And we see that perhaps most commonly in our whole wider community. That as we do surveys, stacks of people say that God exists. But frankly, he's not really living. He's not involved with me. So what's the problem? And as the conversation turns from you know whether God exists or not, and you come to the conclusion, yes, he might exist, but he's got nothing to do with me, then the conversation might end up saying these sort of things that's there in your outline. And you hear people say, look, if I were God, I... And you can fill in the blanks. Well, I can't believe in a God who does this or that, or who's like this. I wonder if you're a Christian here, whether you've actually ever felt the arrogance of that. That somehow you can determine what God should be like, rather than letting him tell you what he is like. Sort of like saying, I can't believe that Michael actually likes rugby. Well, I love it. And it was a tragedy last Saturday when I saw the Wallabies lose. But it's one of those things. Please don't put ideas into what God is like. Find out from what he says and what he's like. Because today, I want to give an invitation to you to meet the true and living God. Not a dead God, the living God. A true God that's involved in our lives. And we're going to do that in the Old Testament pages uh, of the book of the Judges. Because I think when we read Judges, you actually find that he's very much alive and active. He's not a shadowy figure who's just hiding there, waiting for things to happen. And if you're here today and you're not sure about God, well, I want to say to you today that what we're doing as we look at the book of Judges is to come face to face with him. Our aim today and over the next couple of weeks is to do that, is to come face to face with him. Because what we're going to see is we're going to see what God does, what he thinks, what he feels, what his passions are. And that is to come face to face with him. And if you're not a Christian person here today, I want you to meet that God. And if you're here today and you consider yourself a Christian, well, it's great that you're here, and that's fantastic. And I want you to be reminded of this, because I think so often we're caught up with our culture, the culture that says, well, God is there, but, you know, he really doesn't do much. He's not really active. He's not really involved in my life. You know, my action actually doesn't affect him. The way I drive, the way that I have my priorities, the way that I order my life, well, it doesn't really matter. But the thing I think that you're going to find in Judges is, it does matter. And to a group of people who thought that it doesn't matter, but boy, did it matter. They thought, like our culture does, well, he might be there, but he's not involved with what's going on. And you're going to find he is involved. He does care. So I want you to come back with me about 3,000 years or so uh, to the second chapter in the book of Judges. Uh, if you don't have the Bible with you, that's okay. It's actually printed out there in the New International Version. But next week, we're going to cover a huge slab. We're going to go from chapter 3 to chapter 16 or so. And there's no way that I can print everything in one-point text and so that it's all there. So I'd love you to bring your Bible. And not just those half-Bibles that you get, just the New Testament. Bring the whole thing. Um, 
because we're going to flip through the, the book of Judges to get to know uh, that a bit more. And first, we're, we're actually going to pick up the story so far. So in Judges chapter 2, verse 6, after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you, you know that we're at a pivotal point in the Old Testament, pivotal point in Israel's history. The land, the mention of inheritance, those things are really significant things that have actually been raised earlier on in the story. And the second thing is, as you read this, you actually know that you're not just reading an isolated book. Uh, it has a beginning, sure, of the book, but it actually is a part of a story, part of a, a larger story. Judges 6 to 9 there is summarised in verses 7 to 9. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had, been all, uh, who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. See, it's a summary statement of what's actually happened before. It, it's almost like that seeing, you know, Star Wars Episode Four first, right? That was my experience. Uh, I can still remember my sixth class uh, birthday party with a whole lot of friends, and we watched Star Wars, and we were smack bang in, in Episode Four, and, and this is what it's like. But as we read this story, there's actually a beginning, there's actually an end. Uh, this is actually a summary of the episode that's happened before, the episode about Joshua. See, Judges is actually an episode in the grander whole of a larger story. Um, and to actually understand it, we've actually got to put it in context. I guess in my own Christian life, in my own Christian growth, it was one of the most significant things for me to actually find out that the Bible wasn't just 66 separate books written by different authors at different times saying different things. It was that. It was 66 books. It was written by different authors. But it was one story, a story about God's world and what he's doing in it. And it's fantastic. It was a light bulb experience for me to actually understand, no, no, we can't just flip from pieces to pieces and, and get stuff out of it. We can, but you get so much more when you actually understand the big story. So what I want to do now um, to start off with is actually to go back to this story. Because like I said before, this is a story of a grander whole. It's a, it's a story about God's world, really. It's, it's, it's about God's world and God who actually made the world, who made the world by his word, out of nothing. He spoke and it was there. It was an amazing thing. And we don't have a God who just makes things and, and winds the world up like a clockmaker. He does that, but he continues to lovingly sustain it day by day. And as he makes this world, it's a place where it actually reflects who he is, a good God, a powerful God, a purposeful God. And he creates this sphere for us to live in, to, to enjoy, to have life and peace. And out of all creation, he created humanity as a special people, people to enjoy the world, people to rule the world, and yet people to relate to God in a right way, in thankfulness, in trusting, in obedience. And as we flick over the pages from Genesis 1 to 2, we flick over to Genesis 3, we actually see evil entering the world, what Bible scholars call the fall. There were dark days where human beings actually wanted to do their own thing and said, rack off, God. I want to run life my own way, to do my own thing and to make myself God. You're not the one to make the rules. I'm the one to make the rules. And stuff happened. And what we see is death and conflict and murder and disharmony. And, and, and we see that every human being suffers as a result of that. And that they're actually involved in that as well. 
But out of God's love, he actually says, no, no, that's not the end of the story. It's really just the beginning. God actually starts his plan of redemption, starts his plan of rescue, uh, right there and then from Genesis. And, and, and as you turn the pages a bit more, you actually find that the story concentrates on the man called Abraham, who's actually going to produce his own people from the descendants, from his descendants. And God gives him three promises in chapter 12 of Genesis. Three great promises. A promise of a great nation, that, that descendants are going to come from Abraham. That you're going to see that another great promise is that all of Abraham's descendants will be blessed, and through them, the whole world will be blessed. And thirdly, that they're going to have their own piece of land. It's going to be a marvellous thing. God's promise to Abraham are the start of a recreation, a restoration of creation, the reversing of the fall. The promise is there as a plan, of God's plan to remove evil from the world. And it happens when God's promises starts to come through. There's going to be a new place, a new sphere, a new land. There's no longer going to be curses, but blessings, and a new people that's going to turn to God. And you turn the pages a few more, a few more pages, and you actually see that Abraham's descendants do become a great nation. So large, in fact, that it actually becomes a threat to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians put them in slavery. And God raises up this man called Moses, the prince of Egypt, for those of you who watch the cartoon, who led the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea, as you see Israel, uh, Egypt's army gurgle under the sea and enter that promised land through the great leader Joshua. And that's where Judges is at the moment, at the critical time when God is keeping his promises to Abraham. You've got the kids, yes, there's lots of you. In fact, you're enslaved, but I'll rescue you. And the next promise comes through is I'm giving you a land, and here you are, you've just entered it. It's all good, but it's going to get bad, and it's going to turn ugly. And so verses 6 and 7, Judges 2, we see that it's all going well, it's great. And I guess what you're supposed to be asking as you open up the, the first few pages of Judges is the question that should be on your lips when you're reading a story like this is, if you're understanding the episode, is, well, are we just about to see Israel take control of the land fully? Uh, is the restoration of creation actually going to come? Is the fall going to be reversed completely? We're looking for the blessing to Abraham and to the world, and that's what we're expecting. The promise is fulfilled. But what we find as we read the book of Judges is that the promises aren't fulfilled. They're put on hold. It's like ringing up a call centre and, and, and what you hear is just hold music. Hour after hour after hour. And what we're going to see is, as we learned in this section today, is what's happened. Now, one of the things that I find really helpful in reading a, a book of the Bible is actually understand some part of its structure. And, and here uh, is a very simple structure. You'll see that um, if you've read the book of Judges, it actually falls into three distinct sections. Uh, chapter, verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 6 is basically the first uh, section of the book. It gives a summary of what's gone on before, but it also telegraphs what's going to happen later on in the book. Uh, from chapter 3, verse 7 to chapter 16, the end of chapter 16, is the middle section of the book by far the biggest section, where we actually come um, to meet the different uh, judges. We get the specific details about the different judges. That's where you get to meet guys like Gideon and Samson and, and all sorts of other people uh, that you might have heard of before. And friends, if you haven't had a chance to read Judges before coming here, uh, I'm only doing Chapter 2 today. You get a great chance to read that during the week. Why don't you have a Judges party, right? Invite friends over, read Judges. It's an exciting read. Um, 
If there's wonky bits of the Bible that you want to read, well, Judges is one of those places. And then the book closes in another section in chapters 17 to 21. Another section of the Bible, another section of Judges, which actually doesn't mention any Judges, believe it or not. Uh, and it's going to have some very important things to say to us as well. But what we find is that as it turns, starts off good, they're entering the land, as you think, see things deteriorate and go bad to worse as you read about the Judges, it's going to turn ugly. It's going to be horrible. And the way that the book of Judges ends is horrible. There is no king at that time. And everybody saw and did as they saw fit is the way Judges ends. It starts off good, it turns bad, and it ends up ugly. And that's the title of our series, The Good, the Bad and the Ugly. But for the rest of the day, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this opening section. Uh, this preview and uh, the, the rest of the talk um, is, is going to be about that. Next week we're going to look at the middle section, and in the last week we're going to look at the conclusion. And the opening section, I think it's very helpful for us. As I mentioned before, this section is a summary, but also a preview. I don't know whether you like going to the movies and watching movies. One of the things I love about going to movies as much as watching the movies is all the previews at the beginning, uh, the shorts. Because you sort of think, wow, why haven't I been out for such a long time? I'm married, right? And since, since getting married and having kids, I think I've been to the movie once uh, in the last five years or something like that. But that's why I love going to the movies. Sorry, I'm a bit... Yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> I, I love... I love movies, but watching the previews are great as well because you sort of start cataloguing all these movies that you want to see and you just get enough of a snippet of knowing what's going to happen and you get excited by it and you think, wow, I want to get that movie. I, I, want, to, I want to rent it when it comes out in DVD in five years' time or whatever. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's like that. The first couple of chapters give us a basic outline of the events. They tell us the main things that are going to happen in the book and the rest of the book is actually going to fill out the details bit by bit. And so, you'll see a little diagram there with arrows going around in a circle and different sections. And what we're going to start off with is the first section in verses 10 and following. Because there, we see a staggering thing happen. God has done so much for his people. They certainly didn't deserve anything, the people. But simply because God is gracious, simply because God made promises to Abraham, he takes his people out of Egypt, he moulds them into a nation, he gives them the promised land on a plate. And you start asking, what do they do with that? You know, if you were given so much, what do you do? And yet, what we see about Israel as they enter the land is they serve the gods of the Canaanites. Rather than being God's people, they serve other gods. Israel enters the land and they were supposed to be completely wiping out the Canaanites who lived there. And they were supposed to destroy all the idols and all the places of worship, the shrines of the Canaanites. And what we get are the Israelites actually worshipping the Canaanite gods. <clears throat> Come with me again to verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baals and the Ashtoreths. So what's happening here? The people enter the land as God had promised to Abraham. That's true. They commanded to destroy the idols of the land and the people of the land who worked those idols. But they left the people there. They left the idols there. And what's worse is that they joined with their new neighbours in worshipping these idols. What are these idols? 
Well, these idols were actually the fertility gods of the time. The Baals and the Ashtoreths were, were the idols that they were worshipping. They were fertility gods. And the attraction of it was, when you worshipped them, it was on the understanding that worshipping these gods meant that your crops would grow, that your herds would multiply, that they'd be more fertile. That is, you would gain wealth, that you would be prosperous. That was the attraction. That was the compromise that they were involved in. And so the neighbours, the Canaanites, said, look, don't destroy us. We've got the secret to wealth here. You worship our gods. You worship the idols. You worship at these asterisks. And what happens is that your crop will prosper. Your herds will grow, like ours. And Israel was gradually seduced by the people amongst them, the people amongst whom they lived. Now, also involved in the worship was immorality and ungodliness. That's true. Uh, and that's the reason why the idols were to be driven out of the land in the first place. You can get that in Genesis 15, verse 16, and Deuteronomy 18. Genesis 15 and Deuteronomy 18. You can pick that up later. Uh, and there was all sorts of sexual immorality that was going on and ungodliness. Um, but although that was the case, Israel was drawn into the worship of these idols because of the promise of prosperity. And what we notice next is God's response to what they have done. And so in verse 12 we pick it up. So they worship the idols. What's God going to do? So verse 12, They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger. And this point is emphasised a number of times down through this chapter. Israel refuses to worship him. Their adultery, as God puts it, with these other gods provoked him to anger. And so they meet God's anger in all of this. You see, Israel had pledged themselves to God. They pledged over and over again to serve only God. In fact, it was like a wedding. They had wedded themselves to God. They had put on their wedding ring to say, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm only going to worship you. They were to be his people and, they were, and God was to be their God. There was a whole lot of things that he wanted of his people. That they were going to be a holy nation a priest nation to the rest of the world, that through them the blessing would go to the world. But what do we get? We get Israel prostituting themselves, as God puts it. And he's angered by it. He's angered by their unfaithfulness because their devotion is no longer to him only, but to these other gods. They're too tiny. They were cheating on their husband. And what we see is the face of God here, his anger, because he puts the plan on hold and Israel and their very hold on the land itself is put into jeopardy. And you see it in verse 14. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to the enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he has sworn to them, they were in great distress. God's anger wasn't just stewing inside his head or something like that. It wasn't passive aggressiveness like what I do sometimes and just get all grumpy. No, no. God's anger actually leads him to action. And his action leads him to punish Israel for what they have done. And God's method of punishment here is to let the nations that live in the land plunder his own people. Remember what the promise was when Israel worshipped these idols? The promise by the Canaanites was, Israel, 
You worship our idols, you become prosperous. What's the result? They were plundered. There's no prosperity here. They were made poor. They were made destitute. If you got images, any images of those African starving children, those aid programs that you see, those advertisements that you see, think that of Israel. Absolutely destitute, starving, no land for themselves, no place to live. You see what is being said here in the book of Judges? Here is the living God of heaven and earth. And he's doing this to his own people. I don't think this is the God we commonly think of. And, you know, you might be a person that says, I can't believe in a God like this. If I were God, I wouldn't do this. But bully for you. This is what God really is like. God hates sin. He's angered by it. He's angered by apostasy, by people worshipping another God like that. It doesn't sit so well with us, does it, though? That he's so angered that he will punish in a way that is so dramatic, so destroying of his people. And yet that's what he does. This is our God. But the next thing is, we know that this isn't the end of the story. God is actually torn at the sight of the pain of his people. His compassion breaks through. And you see that in verses 16 to 19. Because what does God do with destitute people? Read it in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. They didn't listen to them, as you read in verses 17 and 18. You'll see that. But he keeps raising up judges. For the Lord has compassion on them. Verse 18, as they groan under those who oppressed and afflicted them. See, God has compassion. And he keeps giving opportunity to his people to turn back to him. He's not just cruel because he likes being cruel. He's not cruel because he's a psychopath. He doesn't punish Israel just for the sake of hurting them. God's punishment has a purpose to it. And it was disciplined so that his people might actually turn back. A few weeks ago, I remember seeing on the road um, this girl that just bolted uh, across the street. And this car came to a screeching halt. Just missed the girl by a, a few inches, really. Uh, less than a foot. And the, mother, uh, and the father came storming out, grabbed this girl, pulled her onto the sidewalk, and scolded her like nothing else uh, until she was actually in tears. And, and you just think, Wow, that, that's probably the biggest talking to that she's ever had in her life. But the thing was, he wasn't being cruel. It was because of his great love. He wasn't being vindictive. He loved her and cared for her and didn't want her to be run over by some four-wheel drive right in front of the school. And that's God. God disciplines his people out of love. It's out of sheer love that he also raises these judges to save his people. See, a lot of people say that the opposite of love is hate. But I don't think that's the case. Hate, hating something is, is actually just another side of love. I love my wife, so I hate those people who are trying to lead her astray. It's just part of the same thing. The opposite of love, I think, is often indifference. I don't care. I don't give a stuff. You can do whatever you like. That's not God. He does care about his world. He cares about his people. But did you notice that other ominous thing that was read earlier in these verses? Despite God's continued mercy to the, his people, for their part, Israel continued in their disobedience. You read that in verse 19. But when the judges died, when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. 
They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore God, the Lord, was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died, etc., etc. We come to the full circle. Israel keeps falling back into sin, and so God is now not just described as angry. You see there, he's very angry. And he again turns them over to their enemies. And in a nutshell, that's a basic outline of everything that happens in the book of Judges. Next week, we're going to see how individual episodes in that middle part of Judges, in the middle part of the book, actually follow this cycle. Israel does the wrong thing. God punishes them. He's angry with them. He punishes them. God uses a judge to save them. Um, and yet, um, sometimes because they, they cry out for help. But then fourthly, Israel goes back to sinning again and disobedience. And the pattern just gets repeated over and over again and nausea. But again, we see a picture of God here. What is he like? We see him angered, but we see his compassion. He's a living and personal God who feels, who's torn by evil of his people, and he has compassion for them. He has desire to see his plans fulfilled. They're stubborn, and yet he wants to reach out to them. And yet what happens by the end of chapter, um, uh, the last chapter, in, in chapters 20 to 23, is that the plan to bring them into the land is indeed put on hold. The plan stops at this point, to God's great distress. Uh, and, and rather than improving by the end of the book, we actually see it spiral down. And you'll find the last few chapters of Judges are actually really hard to read because of how bad it gets. You're going to get there in a couple of weeks' time. And the question no longer becomes, you know, are the promises going to be fulfilled? Uh, as you look at the book of Judges as a whole, you start asking um, by the end of the book, what, what hope is there for Israel? What hope is there for God's world? That's where the, the, the book actually goes. And so like a good TV serial, uh, Judges ends with an episode that sort of leaves you in that cliffhanger episode waiting for what's going to happen. God's promises are on hold. He doesn't answer any question. He actually asks more questions. Is he going to give up on Israel? Is he going to start again? What's God going to do about his promises to Abraham? There are periods of peace and quiet. And yet, it sounds like disaster. Well, what I want to do now is actually to come once again face to face with this God. Because the God that we meet here in the Bible, in the pages of the Old Testament here, in events that date well back over 3,000 years um, that, that are recorded, well, that's the same God who's alive and active today. You see, Israel was to discover that God uh, the, the true God is a personal God. And that he has plans and he's actually committed to those plans. That he hates two timing. That his compassion before, towards his people is something that he can't neglect. And yet at the same time, he can't neglect sin and apostasy like that. So what are the big things that we learn? I think the first thing to say is that God still treats sin seriously. It shows us that with God in his dealing with mankind, sin is treated very seriously. Disobedience is a problem that God cannot overlook. It needs to be dealt with. It needs to be punished because he is just. That's why Israel keeps getting handed over to the enemies. God hates disobedience. He hates it. And so often I think we as Christians, we lie to ourselves and we say, oh, it doesn't really matter. That little thing, it doesn't really matter. 
copying those DVDs, copying those CDs, copying those computer programs, it doesn't matter. Or looking at pornography on the web, just one more time, that's okay. Just one more time. And God pays lie to, it doesn't matter. And God pays lie to, just one more time. It does matter, he is serious. Because God is completely holy. And he takes sin, every sin, seriously. From the worldwide sins that we have of war and terrorism to our own personal sins, we take seriously. God is not one who's to be too tired. And I think if you're a Christian person here today, I want you to see the importance of this. The living God is grieved by our actions when we sin. The way I drive my car, my sexual purity or lack of it, these things actually affect God as Israel's action affected him then. I wonder, do you think like that? Do you realise that the God who you think, well, he's there, is actually involved in our lives like that? He cares. You hear echoes of it in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 5 it says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore don't be partners with him. Why is God's wrath coming? Because of disobedience. In the book of Colossians, chapter 3, it says the same sort of thing. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And here I want to speak especially to our situation here at university, and maybe with echoes of it coming from the book of Judges. I think we're so often shaped by our culture to pursue the things of our culture push to worship the god money, as Israel was tempted to, to worship their fertility god. Because it's for the same thing. We don't say it like we worship money. But we desire the offcuts of that, the power and the prosperity that comes. Much like the Israelites selling out and worshipping the god for their own reason of getting prosperous. I know this with my own family. My father was like that. He pushed and pushed his children so that they'd be more successful. Like a typical migrant family, success, money, prosperity was the most important thing. You show those, what, those Australians what, what, these, what us Asian immigrants are made of. We can earn more money and have more power. But it's the same. We, we try to get the best mark to get in the best course. Because have you ever noticed the correlation of TERs and starting salaries? It's pretty similar. I wonder why that is. It might be because you know, they're actually good noble jobs and, and, and that's a good thing. But more often, I think it's a salary that comes to it, and it's all supply and demand. And I think it's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to convince people to think about Christian ministry. I talk to people a lot about this, and yet so many people say, no, it's too hard, it's a crappy job, I don't get paid, the work is bad. Now, I'm not saying that employment and good work is bad thing. I think they're wonderful gifts of God. But I wonder how often we worship it. We get so caught up with, with, with the, the lifestyle, with, 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 with money, and our culture shapes us like that. And it's all about how much we can earn and how much money that we can get. And we shape our courses and our careers and our time at university to be that. It's sad. And I want to appeal to you today, don't make the mistake that Israel did. Don't do that. Don't let your view of God be pushed in such a way that you become apostate and worship things of our culture, particularly of wealth and prosperity. You see, it's no less perverse to worship the almighty dollar and the status it brings 
as it is to bow down to a statue of Baal. See, you people here probably don't earn much money. That's probably true. And you might be sitting there smugly, you know, with your poverty and think, Michael, you don't know anything. But I want to say you might earn not much, but you have the highest disposable income of most people. For a lot of you, you can determine what you can do with your money. You don't have a mortgage to pay. You don't have food bills to pay. You might pay a bit of board, a bit of rent. But you've got so much disposable income. And I want to say to you, be generous. Learn that. Learn to save so that you can be generous. Learn to be generous. Learn, learn to use that money for ministry, to see ministry grow. Get involved with Partnership Plus, overseas mission, giving to your church. Do that with your time as well. But secondly, though, the opening verses actually highlight for us uh, that uh, the God that we're dealing with is persistently merciful as well. Israel keeps on letting him down, and yet God still stays with him. Israel's sin is being matched with God's love. God is so gracious that he continues sends a judge to help them out. And I want to say to you, if you're a person who's not a Christian today, and you think that your sin is too far gone, don't. Because God is merciful. God is still merciful today and wants you to repent. In 2 Peter chapter 3 it says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Judgment hasn't happened yet, friends, if you're not a Christian here today, so that you can turn to him. Take that opportunity. Do that. The living God is patient and will forgive. But be warned, there is an end to his patience. Don't push your luck. If you've seen God face to face today, it's for us to consider our response to him. The last thing I want to say is that God continues to do his work by raising saviors. Uh, the book of Judges shows us that, that, that the way that God goes about bringing his people back to him is actually by raising up saviors. And this is where we can go to town. I mean, you know, we've got mission in a couple of weeks' time. I thought, you know, maybe one way of applying is that God raises up saviors back in Israel's time, God raises up saviors today, so we need to raise up lots of saviors for mission as we come up. No, 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 don't do that. We've got the same God as we have in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's true. But certainly we're not Israelites. We're not the saviors. No, no. The, the model par excellence of Jesus, of, of saviors, of judges, is Jesus. That's who we're looking to. Um, Andrew always used to say that the things that happen in the Old Testament is like a tune played in a certain key. And as you read it in the New Testament, it's the same tune but just played in a different key. I think it's even more different to that. I think it's like hearing the overture of a musical that happens in the Old Testament. And we hear the same tunes in, in arranged differently, but we, we're supposed to pick up what's going on. As we see these judges, we see these saviours, well, we see Jesus, who is the Saviour, who's conquered death. God is still serious about sin, serious enough that he puts his only son to death, to die on the cross so that sin can be dealt with. God is so loving that he sent his son into the world to die on our behalf. I've got two beautiful daughters. You're going to see a picture of them next week. Um, but there's nothing that I would give them up for. And yet God gave up his one and only son that for our sake we might be right with him. And that's a staggering thing. God is still angered with sin. God still gives us a chance to repent and he's merciful. And God does his all 
through the Lord Jesus Christ, through our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the book of Judges. We thank you so much that um, in it we see uh, inklings of what you are like. Father, we pray that we pay heed that you're a God who's still angry with sin and help us to deal with sin with the power of your Spirit. And Father, we pray that we would seek you for mercy, especially for those of us who don't know you. Uh, Help us to do that. And Father, help us to look to Jesus as your judge, as your saviour, who brings a solution to the world. And we pray this for Jesus' sake.